the way I see it is this is actually just the manifestation of the fact that people have been a bit lazy around NFTs. They don't really understand how they work. People have been dealing in them and trading them and creating them without fully understanding the implications. And mimics are really just a demonstration of some implications that people haven't thought about but should have. So in, in that sense, I want it to be a bit of a, a rude awakening to people, but in a productive way, like so that they better understand what they're doing, what they're dealing with, what they've created, and they can improve on it. So I, I hope people just accept that, that this is at least a small part of the future of NFTs. Welcome to Mutable, a podcast about Web3 in the wild. I'm Ellie Rennie, a digital ethnographer from RMIT University in Melbourne. Underpinning Web3 are immutable records, meaning data that can't be changed. The world, however, is always changing, and Web3 just keeps getting weirder. Each episode of Mutable focuses on a particular blockchain-based innovation, what it does and how it is being used. Back in 2020, I purchased an NFT by an artist unknown to me who goes by the name Xenolus. I found it on a platform for generative NFTs called Artblocks. With a generative NFT, the parameters of the artwork are formulated by the artist using an algorithm and you don't fully know what you are getting until you mint the NFT. This particular NFT is an animation of a small, lumpy little planet with continents, icebergs, and plants sprouting from it. The collection is called Galaxis, and I bought one because, like many people at that time, I wanted to experience what Web3 could do beyond digital money. And yes, this mutant little planet is the image on your podcast app right now. Although I love my Galaxis, I'm still figuring out what NFTs are good for. In this episode, we look at NFTs and one project in particular that has been designed to make us think harder about how they work and why they matter. So I am a Guildmaster Fuzzleblot from the Mimicologist Guild. <laughs> okay. Is there a short version of that that I can refer to you as when in conversation? Fuzzle. I don't Fuzzle. Fuzzle's fine. I should mention, Guildmaster Fuzzlebot is not his real name and we've changed his voice to protect his identity. So the, the Mimics project, it's now called Mimicus Ethereensis on, on OpenSea anyway, but it's, I just call it Mimics for short. It started as a realisation with some crypto friends that you could proxy NFT data because it's all public. The, the, the NFT metadata that is presented is not only completely unprotected, but is publicly available to every contract on Ethereum at any time. So that has some really interesting implications in terms of uh, how NFTs end up working and some new directions that they can be taken that, that nobody's really done yet. For the most part, I think developers would be aware of this structure in NFTs, in the NFT standards, but it's almost so obvious that nobody bothers to go down that rabbit hole. 
But that's what Mimix is. You end up with a NFT that can transform to look like any other NFT. So I could get my NFT to look like the famous Beeple one. Yes. So right now, I could make an exact copy of someone else's NFT, even if they spent a lot of money on it. It feels so Ocean's Eleven. Should I, though? Well, creating a mimic of an NFT is not quite as straightforward as it seemed when I first spoke to Guildmaster Fuzzleblot, as I'm about to find out. Because it's almost like trying to define the laws of outer space. These are uncharted waters. There are legal questions, really hard ones. And then there's the whole issue of why I would want to mimic someone else's NFT and how the artist whose work I choose to mimic might feel about it. But first, let's go back to what NFTs are and why they are significant for creative practitioners. My name is Andy Parker. I am an Ethereum developer who has been working with NFTs since 2017. I was a contributor on the ERC721 NFT standard and uh, I have a number of NFT projects on the mainnet. All right, so I'm going to ask you the question that you never want to answer, which is, what is an NFT? What is an NFT? I think the world has decided that an NFT is just a thing that you can own on the internet, which it kind of is, but in a very technical sense, it's like a Bitcoin but it says exactly which Bitcoin you own rather than just how many you own. In his blog, Andy describes it this way. A dollar coin is fungible because if I give you a dollar coin and you give me a different dollar coin, neither of us are better or worse off. A dollar is a dollar. However, if I give you my pet cat and you give me your pet cat, we may not be happy because pet cats are not completely interchangeable. They are non-fungible. At a technical level, NFTs are achieved through token standards, which means they can be recognised and used by different applications on the same blockchain in the same way that electronic goods need particular plugs to be compatible with a wall socket. Andy contributed to the first NFT standard, ERC721. Okay, so I, I should clarify, I'm not, I wasn't a major participant. I was sort of the, the et al at the, at the bottom of the, at the notes. Standards are important for this story because if the standard is missing something, then NFTs will have vulnerabilities. It's kind of like if Parliament passed a law without checking it thoroughly. It could later be exploited for some omission or misstep. But NFTs are not just a technical phenomenon. This story isn't just about the standards. NFTs are really about ownership and what it means to own something unique or something limited in number, such as a collectible. The whole point about ownership and property in general is that if you can own something, you can also buy, sell, borrow or share that thing. The fact that you can own the thing makes people assign value to that thing. When we place value on a cultural object, like an artwork or a collectible. It's not the thing that we are valuing necessarily, but it's status among those who know about it and identify with it. I can get my hands on some canvas and oil paints pretty cheaply, but if I'm not Frida Kahlo, there's probably going to be less value in what I do than what she did. 
But when most people think of NFTs, they don't picture a Frida Kahlo. They picture like a cute picture of a cat. You're not just buying a GIF. You're not just buying a picture of a cat. Because if it was just a picture of a cat, it's probably objectively not worth $10,000. But you're buying into the ethos of whatever it is. So when you buy a moon cat, you're buying this cool thing that everyone is, wants to be part of, which is focused around this website. It's focused around the people who build it or who, who support it. It's the same with, I think, basically any NFT, even like a pure art one. Like if you buy this NFT and then the artist just gets bored and stops making art, it's not as cool. So I think you're kind of buying into a living project. Now back to the Mimics project. The way NFTs work is there's two main kind of areas of functionality. One is all around ownership and transferring them and authorizing other people to work on your behalf. It's it's really like the ownership model within the NFT. And that's really protected. That's really blockchain safe. Your ownership of that is rock solid on blockchain. The other part of it is displaying data, um, displaying what it looks like, displaying what its name is often, and it can have sounds. It can have all sorts of different bits of data, but there's just one function that provides all of that. And because websites need to be able to access that and wallets need to be able to access that, it's completely public. It's available to anybody. Anybody can access that at any time. And generally what happens with an NFT is it's only websites who would access that. But in the case of Mimics, the Mimic contract actually accesses that itself. And it does something that you'd call in computer software called proxying, where so the normal flow of an NFT would be a website says to the NFT, hey, can I have the data about what you look like? It just calls that public function. It's available to everybody. And the NFT returns that payload. And then the website interprets that into pictures and displays it for the user. Payload here means the data that specifies what the NFT looks or sounds like. What's happening with the the Mimic NFT is when the website asks the Mimic NFT, what do you look like? The Mimic NFT asks some other NFT, what do you look like? And when it, whatever it gets back, it's going to pass back to the website. And so from the website's perspective, the website gets the payload from the Mimic, but the Mimic actually got the payload from another NFT. So what if that NFT changes payload, the Mimic would change? It would, yes, yes. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, this is this is the good thing about on chain. Like, like it, it's it's a real thing. It's it's a real sort of data flow through the Ethereum network. I suppose my question is: Say someone has a mimic of a beeple. Yeah. Can someone else create another mimic of the same beeple? Yes, right. Uh, it's it's complicated. So within within my mimic that I've created, which is, I guess, I mean, I'm going to call it the canonical mimic because there will be other mimics that follow, I guess. By this, Fuzzle means that his project is open source. So anyone could take that source code and start a new project that does pretty much the same thing. But there are reasons why I might want one of these mimics. As the first of its kind, it might accrue some OG status. Of course, it also gives you the ability to have a copy of an NFT you can't afford, which might be valuable in a particular context, like displaying it in a virtual environment. It looks cool. They can put it on their virtual wall in the metaverse or something like that. Um, so it just it kind of adds a bit of a, an opportunity there for people to 
to have something that's not quite the real thing, but it's it's the most genuine copy you can get because it's on-chain. It's 100% on-chain. And if you perform something called a write, it means you get exclusive mimicry. Anyone else who has mimicked it will find that their mimic converts back. The owner of the original work that's been mimicked will know that one of their pieces was considered interesting enough to get mimicked if that write is performed. When you perform a write and you lock onto a NFT, just as like a nice little gesture for the person who you've locked your NFT onto, the, the owner of the NFT that you've locked onto, they receive a secondary NFT called a shield of essence. And because the mimic, you're never going to see that beautiful mimic face again because it's now locked to something else. So the shield of essence kind of takes the essence of those facial features and the colouring of the mimic, creates a NFT shield out of it, and that is given as part of the right. It's given to the owner of the NFT that got mimicked. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So they do know they've been mimicked because the, their wallet... The shield will appear in their wallet. Whoever owns it at yeah. that point in time. Yeah. So I decide to mint a mimic. For the canonical mimic, as many people as they like can mimic an NFT like the people. So lots of people could all convert their mimics to look like a people, transform to look like people. But if anybody performs this thing called a rite, they get exclusive mimicry of that people. Everyone else who's, who's mimicked it, their mimics convert back to just normal mimics. How the hell does that work? <laughs> yeah, it's all, it, it, was, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of spaghetti in the code, but it all happens with the mimic that function I was talking about, um, the, the token URI function or the metadata function that returns the payload, there's a lot going on in the mimic one. So it's doing a bunch of checks. And if someone has exclusive rights to have mimicked something and your mimic you've tried to mimic or you have mimicked in the past, when that token URI function gets called, it's actually going to check that and it's just going to pretend that you never did it. So in effect, your mimic, it doesn't look like the people anymore. It just looks like a normal mimic. And I figure if I'm going to mimic something, I'll go for something with a bit of profile. The NFT of this digital work sold for almost 70 million US dollars in 2021. So it does feel a bit like there could be some legal risk in mimicking it. Would there be any copyright infringement issues there, though? I mean, I know that you can clearly, you can just take that Beeple image and copy the image and there are copyright implications around them, what you could do with it. Yeah. You could maybe get away with saving it and looking at it on your screensaver, but you pro definitely couldn't probably put it on a T-shirt, for instance, right. and sell right. that T-shirt, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, does the fact that what you're doing here goes even further into the actual NFT itself, when you own an NFT, it's not really the image that you own, it's, the, it's also the packaging, no? Yeah, I mean, this, this is really interesting and I really want to know the answer to this and I'm not qualified to answer it, but I'll try um, or I'll at least speak about some of the things I've, I've thought about. So what you have ownership of 
is again like this this ownership model within the NFT code, but in terms of the data, in terms of the image, and and all of that, at least as far as solidity is concerned, you've made that public. You've put it on a what's called a public function. It's literally got the word public written in it in code. So you've put it in code and written public on this. It's available to everybody at any time. I don't know. Perhaps the copyright is flowing through the through the code proxy. I, I don't know. Who knows? But it's 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 very strange. Um, I feel like I feel we need like a lawyer. Yeah. yeah, I actually know one. Okay. I might I might um, bring this to her. If you can say your name and what you do. Alana Kushner, and I am an art lawyer. Do you want to record a legal disclaimer? Yeah, sure. So nothing we'll be discussing should be considered legal advice, and if you need legal advice, please speak to a lawyer. What kind of law are we dealing with in this case? So not is it legal, but Mm. what area of the law should we be thinking of or referring to? Well, I think it actually could bring up a number of different areas of law. Some are probably more obvious than others. So, for example, copyright law is an area that we can think through in the context of this example. There's also contract law and consumer protection law. But let's start with the obvious one. Copyright which falls under the umbrella of intellectual property rights, alongside trademarks, patents, and a bunch of other stuff. Okay, so firstly, what's copyright? So copyright is an intangible property right. So, of course, we have, you know, physical property. You've got your physical assets. So imagine you have a drink bottle that you buy uh, and you can enjoy that drink bottle to the exclusion of anybody else. You can drink that water, you can you can spill it, you can throw it in the bin. Once you're done with it, you can do whatever you want. That's what happens when you own physical property. When you own intangible property, it's a little bit different. So let's say I own the copyright in a photograph. That photograph, I can enjoy it and at the same time as myself enjoying that photograph, somebody on the other side of the world could be looking at a copy of that photograph and enjoy it just as much as me. So in that way, you can have copies of that property, but as the exclusive owner, you should still be able to enjoy it to the exclusion of anyone else. In Australia, original works receive copyright protection at the point of creation, making it unlawful to use another's copyright-protected work without the author's permission. So the general presumption is that it's the person who created the artwork, that the copyright sits with them unless they have expressly handed over that copyright as part of the transfer. And I know that in NFT circles there seems to be some presumption that that's what actually happens. So, for example, you buy the NFT artwork, you have all the rights to do whatever you want with it. But if you take it back and if you think of a physical, you know, like a traditional artwork, a painting on a wall, if you buy a painting on a wall, you're not given automatic rights 
copyrights to it. You're given rights to the physical property. You can buy a painting by the famous contemporary artist Gerhard Richter, but you can't just start producing copies of it, printing it on T-shirts and so on. Once you've established that something is protected by copyright, the copyright laws in Australia essentially say that you have moral rights in that work. And there are essentially three types of moral rights that exist under the Copyright Act. So there's the right to be attributed as the author. There is the right to not have your work treated in a derogatory way. And there's also the right, it's like a double negative, but the right to not have your work falsely attributed or or to have it misattributed. So if I create a work but the, I don't know, somebody referred to it and and instead of crediting me, they credited me and, and spelt my name wrong, I could actually bring a moral rights infringement against them for misattributing me as the author of the work. And that's actually happened <laughs> in the past. But the derogatory treatment right is actually very broad in Australia, especially when it relates to artistic works, because, you know, of course, you couldn't do things like physically destroy the work, but it doesn't have to be a physical intervention with the work. And in that sense, it's much broader than moral rights in America, for example, where usually you do have to have a physical intervention with the work. Here, even if you exhibit a work in a context that prejudices the author's you know, honour or reputation, that's the wording used in the Act, then it could be considered a form of derogatory treatment. So even putting it in certain contexts can have the, the effect of impacting your moral rights. Wow. Okay. This is going to get complicated, I can see. So <laughs> the Fuzzle himself, yes. when I was talking to him, he talks about this being not copying anything but just essentially calling a function and it's actually called proxying in software terms. Mm -hmm. So it's not copying anything from anywhere. All it's doing is saying I'm going to call this information and that information is about displaying a thing. So your NFT will do the same thing as the other NFT. So it asks another NFT what do you look like and it sends what that NFT looks like to the website instead of how the Mimic originally appeared. That's all it's doing, right? I mean, how, how do you understand that if it's just a function? It's not copying anything. It's not doing anything other than saying the website should point to this, not this. Yeah, so clearly the reproduction right wouldn't have been exploited there. Because if you do want to rely on that reproduction right, or say there's a copyright infringement by reproduction, you have to actually prove copying. There has to be a reproduction. So if you can't establish that, it will be very tricky for you. However, there are these other rights that come with being a copyright owner. And that's where I think, you know, potentially, you you could potentially argue there's a communication to the public type of right that, that's being infringed upon here because are you transmitting it electronically in any, you know, and I think this is where it would get down really to the specifics of how 
the proxy process works. But, it, you know, it's possible. You could potentially argue that it is triggering that, that it's transmitting electronically. So it's possible, but <laughs> often these kind of questions only actually get resolved, you know, resolved in, in a court. Um, you can argue for and against, but it's not necessarily a black and white answer. And I'm assuming no one's argued this one in a court yet. Probably not, no. (laughs) (laughs) Although you could probably go through quite an interesting analysis of um, cases that look specifically at at code, and and that's probably what you'd base your arguments on. But I could imagine if this went to court, you'd definitely have arguments for and against. And would any of these additional functionalities, for instance, performing the right that means that other people who own Mimics cannot mimic the work that you mimicked and we use the example of people, um, would that change anything, your ability to kind of do something that other people then can't do? Are you? I guess it depends on if, if it impacts on what the owner, the actual copyright owner, or not just the owner but, you know, an actual authorised licensee, what they can do. So if it impacts on... Um, the rights of those who do have the right to, you know, use the copyrights in certain ways, then potentially. Um, but if it impacts on just what the broader public could do, not necessarily. Mm, that's interesting. So if there was something like a board ape which gave the owners of those apes certain licenses and then you create a piece of software which um, limits actually their ability to undertake those things they're licensed to do, then you're kind of infringing on something. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. So what you're saying is that it probably also comes down to the NFT that you're mimicking here because if you're mimicking something which is licensed under Creative Commons and says anyone is actually free to do whatever they want with it, I don't care, then the mimic's probably not really doing anything wrong, right? Yeah, absolutely. Every, every time you have this question around copyright with NFTs, you actually have to look at the NFT itself or the work itself. And, and that's actually what you do with any copyright analysis. So before you can even work out if there's an infringement, you first have to establish whether the original work is protected by copyright. Or if it's not protected by copyright, then there can't be a copyright infringement. So at this point, I am thinking I should mimic an NFT that is not protected by copyright. But then would I be pushing boundaries and testing the system in the way that Fuzzle and his colleagues intended? So the other issue here is, if there is some infringement of copyrights or whatever, who is responsible and who should be held accountable? Let's say you've created an NFT and you find that it's been the subject of this mimic project and you're unhappy with it, who would you actually make a claim against? Would it be the owner of the NFT? Would it be, would it be you know, the creator of the, this Mimic project that, you know, they'll say, oh, well, I didn't actually do this. I just provided a set of instructions, right, on my Discord, but I didn't do it myself. I think it's important to keep in mind there that, again, coming back to copyright, and who can infringe copyright, under the Copyright Act there's a section that's focused on what we call infringement by authorization. So this is where you effectively authorise somebody to commit a copyright infringement. And, of course, there's a whole interesting series of cases involving, you know, illegal music downloads 
in the 2000s which concerned this and the idea of, you know, there was this case back in the day called MP3s for, for Free. There used to be a website mm-hmm. called MP3s for Free and on this website um, they just included links. So they, they weren't actually committing copyright infringement but they just included these links that you could click on and that was actually found to be copyright infringement by authorisation. So even if you are not doing the infringing act yourself, if all you're doing is giving people the tools to do that infringement, you have to take steps to make it clear to users that what they are doing may be a form of infringement. And that feels like a great place for me to bring it back to Mimics. Perhaps it's the case that they are not copying anything. They are more like seeing a reflection of a thing in a mirror or seeing the Mona Lisa when FaceTiming with a friend who happens to be at the Louvre. There's also another part to this, which is the terms and conditions of the platform that the NFT is sold through. That's a matter of contract law. As Alana explained it to me, when you use a website and agree to its terms, there's a contract between you and the owner of the website. Well, the essence for me here is that it's about the display of that work, which, as you've said, is encompassed within copyright law. If I go to something like OpenSea and the terms say that as the owner of this NFT, you have the right to display it, but it's not an exclusive right to display it, anyone can actually Mm -hmm. display it, Mm -hmm. then seemingly the mimic's not doing anything wrong there. Yes, unless you make that argument around it being a form of communication to the public, kind yeah. of a, which is a bit of a stretch, but, you know, it's it's possible. But then that's where you have other areas of law you can rely on. So often when you're arguing copyright infringement, you might also be able to argue that as a form of misleading and deceptive conduct, which is a completely separate area of law, doesn't rely on copying. That's Again, a very broad provision where essentially it says if you mislead or deceive in, in trade or, or commerce, then you're going to be liable. And trade or commerce has been interpreted very broadly. Whether something is misleading or deceptive or what we call likely to mislead or deceive, you have to look at who the the audience for that work or NFT is Um and the likelihood of confusion. So are they going to be confused? And this is, this is actually, I reckon, probably a really potentially strong argument here where if the mimic is just, um, you know, when you're looking at a website, it just looks like that NFT even though you could say it's not, it's going to confuse people, mm. you would think, as to, you know, wh- who what this NFT actually really is. And um, so if you can show that, then you'll have a pretty good argument for misleading and deceptive conduct. Yeah, and I have read about instances where scammers will, say, create a fake bored ape in order to scam someone else Mm. and mislead that person into thinking that they are someone who has a lot of bored apes and, and therefore can be trusted. However, as we heard at the start, this is also a project about fixing NFTs, raising awareness of some gaps in the NFT standard. And there are some interesting things that you can do with your mimic that draw attention to this, like the Rickroll. There is also something you can do um, when you create an NFT on this function. You can The function, and all functions actually in Solidity, uh, have a little thing called message.sender 
and that gives you information about who's actually calling the function or running the function. And so you can actually check that to see whether it's a contract or whether it's sort of an end user or a website, and you can make a distinction and you can actually behave differently based on that. So one thing you could do is if a contract like a Mimic um, targeted your NFT, um, you could just reject that and send them nothing. You could just say, I'm not giving you any information because you're a contract and I don't want contracts getting my information. Um, or you could send them an alternate payload. So you could actually send them like Rick Astley doing a dance as, as the NFT. And that's what the mimic would end up looking like. Whereas if a, if a website asked for your data, you give them the real data. Um, so there are some tricks you can do. The interesting thing is because as far as I'm aware, this has gone under everyone's radar. I'm not sh really aware of any NFTs that implement that, that code. Andy, who we heard from earlier, has also been pushing the boundaries of NFTs. One of his experiments was Ethervirus. So that was Ethervirus, which now feels like kind of poor taste. That was before I knew that we would have a pandemic. So I feel like I need to qualify that. If I, you know, with all the horrible things that have happened, I definitely would have not done it. Um, but this was before, before everything went down. Um, and essentially I was just playing around with, I was just trying to mess with people because I, I think I have a pretty good understanding of the core of, of how NFTs work and, and where the edges are. I kind of noticed that, I just noticed the way that third-party sites like Etherscan kind of dealt with them and, and how they showed up and, and how, because NFTs were relatively new then, like they weren't new, but it wasn't like now where there's a million of them. Like it's kind of at a point where if an NFT appeared in your wallet, you would pay attention to it. So I decided to code a thing which essentially just spread very far and got a lot of visibility as fast as possible. So the two main things I did were I realized that the way Etherscan um, tracks uh, how many there are and what's going on, they don't look really directly at the stored data on the contract. They just look at events, which is a thing that gets emitted. You can, it's just a log. It's just a way of saying, hey, I just did this transaction, but here's a bit of relevant data, which the front end will probably know. So um, for example, in ERC721, when you transfer a token, it does emit an event which says like, this is what token it was, this is who sent it, and this is who got it. So then, you know, your website can say like, okay, well then this is, this person has it now, you just know. Um, but I realized that that's basically what they all use as gospel. Like they don't really check, does this person actually own it? They just look at them. So I realized, all right, I can just multiply them. I can just say like, for if, when I send one token, I'll just do 10 of them. Like every one token is 10 events. And so like Etherscan will be like, wow, there's like 10 tokens just got transferred then. So five of them is 50. And so pretty fast I got, I don't know if I got to the top of this of the rankings, but I may have. Enough that people could be scrolling through the top 721 things like, what's this thing all about? So there was that functionality and also some dodgy stuff. Well, not dodgy, but like, you know, mischievous stuff, I'll say where I made, when you transfer one of these tokens to one person, it also transfers and it creates a new one and sends it to someone else. And so it just sort of 
increasing. To anybody? To any wallet? Or to someone? No. Uh, I can't. So there was, a, I did that one and another one very similar straight afterwards. So I can't remember if I employed this in the virus one, but essentially I was looking through, um, I was just like scanning all these ERC721 projects, trying to find one which had a publicly exposed like list of their token holders. Um, and I found one. It was just some, uh, I can't remember what it was. It was like a blockchain game. But essentially, so every time like you transferred one of the Ethervirus ones, Mike, the contract would just look at their thing like, all right, one of those people, give them one as well. So that, that's kind of like an airdrop, right? It is kind of a malicious airdrop. <laughs> <laughs> well, most airdrops are a bit malicious. Yeah, yeah. It's like you two dropping their album on all Apple Music users. Yeah. I would say this was less malicious than that. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't use up anyone's like iPhone storage and get in the way of their... Yeah. It didn't have auto-played when you were just trying to listen to good music, so I think this is actually better than that. <laughs> um. So the second project was... It was very similar. It was so close in time and functionality that I I conflate them in my mind. I think I took a bunch of because the 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 virus one was sort of an afternoon and was also intended as a as just an art project. Like I wasn't I wasn't trying to mess with people. It was more like here's a cool thing, you know. I'm going to make it. I'm going to see how far it spreads. But the second one was more like oh this is how this whole thing works. Like let's see how far I can push this. So the second one was called. I think it was called Crypto Satan and the artwork was a pit, like an old Renaissance picture of the devil <laughs> and the code was 666 or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. that's malicious. Yeah. <laughs> it had, had, yeah, it had more of these mechanics in there, but it was the same vibe. Like it didn't do anything. It wasn't, you know, yeah. you, you could just ignore it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I feel left out that I didn't get one of them. <laughs> <laughs> They're still out there. I think I th- actually think that the because I think that the virus one was more was more gamified from memory. So I think there was a, a sort of you could immunize yourself against it. You know, take a vaccine, and you know there was a mechanic in there. And also, I think it expires. So like, if you didn't transmit it in in a certain amount of time, you know, again, bad taste now, but you were dead in air quotes, and you couldn't transfer them anymore. Yeah, so there was more of a game mechanic there, which encouraged a bit of participation, but also was, you know, transparently like, this is what it is. And you could go to the website and you could, you know, press like vaccinate or whatever. Um, it didn't take any money. It didn't extract money apart from transaction costs, which were normal compared to nowadays. Nowadays, Yeah, but the, the latter one was just like, how much can I spread this in the shortest amount possible? The Fuzzle remembers this as an attempt to bring attention to things that needed fixing. When I was talking to Andy, you know, he had that project. If you had this NFT in your wallet, it would kind of send it to every wallet. The, the virus. <laughs> yeah. virus. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty sinister. Really. Yeah. But I think it was great. Like, like people need to realise that this is possible. And um, I'm sure a lot, of, uh, a lot of marketplaces had to adapt to that to that particular virus right? Um, and implement things to to mitigate it. Um, so, the, yeah, I mean, ultimately these things all make uh, standards better. In the interview with the Fuzzle himself, I, um, I felt that he was being very explicit that this project is, it, it's there to make you question. I would probably almost class it as a hoax. 
as something which is deliberately um, doing something that it shouldn't in order to create social awareness. In this case, around the problems of NFT markets and the need for improvements in NFT standards. Is there any leeway when it comes to moral rights around things like hoaxes or satire or any of those categories? So it's not so much a moral rights question, but there are certain defences to copyright infringement. Um, And there's a set of defences called fair dealing. So um, with the idea being that if you are infringing copyright in a protected work, but you're doing so in a fair way, there's a defence to that. In Australia, the fair dealing exceptions are very narrow. But interestingly, there is a category called criticism or review. Um, There's also a category for reporting the news. So that's how, you know, when they do news reports on TV and they're showing photos from other TV stations and things like that, they can do that uh, because it's reporting the news as long as you attribute the author then it's okay. Uh, But, yes, you have criticism or review, reporting the news, parody or satire, um, research or study. So I'm a researcher. That's yeah, good. <laughs> so as long as it's, you know, for, and and you, the thing is, yeah, I mean, you could, it could even be for your personal research. Can't be for teaching those. That's I've always found that challenging. Actually, <laughs> for when you're teaching others, but if if it's for your own personal research, lucky this podcast is not educational. <laughs> so um, unfortunately, we haven't had a lot of case law in Australia that actually has looked at these specific categories and what they mean. So parody or satires our most recent edition. It's about 10 years old. There's never been a case that has looked at parody or satire. <laughs> Criticism or review, we've had a couple of high-profile cases. There was one that involved um, this, um, well, now it's an old uh, Channel 10 show, The Panel, and there used to be this group of hosts that would sit around and discuss the news of the day but in a quite a comedic way. And so they would use, you know, these news extracts from other TV stations when they were um, doing their coverage. And so there was a really interesting case that was brought around copyright infringement where the panel argued, well, this is, A, it's a form of reporting the news. So there was actually a really que- interesting question that the court had to look at in, in that could you is it considered reporting the news if it's funny? So if you have mm. humour, it's, it's still reporting. They said it could be, um, but there was also they also tried to argue that it was a form of criticism or review and so there was an exception to copyright in infringement and the court there said it's got to be a form of critique which actually critiques the underlying work itself. So it can't be sort of a general critique on contemporary society, put it that way. So, I I mean, often this comes up with art. So there's a whole history of appropriation art, of course. And actually I think this mimic project is very interesting to think about in that context. You could write a very interesting art theory around how it fits into the history of appropriation art. But a lot of appropriation art is founded on this idea that you have to use references from contemporary society to comment on these issues that we're dealing with and that we should that we should be dealing with you know a lot of of time people artists will use references from consumer culture or like images of disney characters or you know well-known things that people recognize but unless you're critiquing that specific character 
that's how narrow it has to be to fall under criticism or review in Australia. So if we take that back to the, the mimic example, if it's a good idea that you're really thinking hard about which NFT you want to mimic before you pull the trigger because that will make a difference in terms of whether it's considered a form of criticism or review. So can you find one where you're really demonstrating these issues that, that are at play in the NFT industry? I think I could write a fabulous <laughs> critique of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So oh, that's, that's really interesting. Okay. So it feels like I'd be taking too much risk mimicking something like a beeple where there's a human holding the copyright who could take me down. But then I have a brainwave. What about art that wasn't created by a human at all, such as a generative artwork created by an AI? And isn't there something about the work needs to be created by a human, which might complicate generative artworks? Uh, yes, there is. So, again, that comes back to the originality requirement. So it needs to originate from a human author. So with a generative artwork then, I mean, you're, you're writing a piece of software and you are saying it's going to exist within these parameters. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like because that's just going to be determined by the algorithm, but it's going to, it's going to look like something and they're all going to look something similar. I mean, isn't there some kind of human authorship in that process, would you say, or would that be considered a non-human? Yeah, I mean, when it, with a generative artwork, I guess you could say there's almost two layers of copyright. So you've got the the resulting visual image and that would be protected as an, as an artistic work. And then you've got your underlying code. So you, you'd really pull those apart, I think, and, and analyse them separately. But if it's that final artwork that you want your mimic to point to rather than the code, yes, has it originated from a human author? I mean, at the same time, you could think of like, I don't know, painting a painting. There are, certain, there are tools that you use as a painter to create that work, you know, unless you're finger painting, right? Even then you're using your human body but you're still using certain tools. might not be the latest tech but you're still using paintbrushes and you're using paint thinners and you're using, you know, kind of modelling paste and who knows, you know, and you're using your canvas and so you're still using tools to create that. So you could, you know, there's a good argument to say by analogy, really, if you're using a computer program to create something that's visual, it's still like an evolution of painting in a way. So maybe that's going beyond illegal analysis. It's very hard for me to <laughs> pick a, an NFT to mimic right now. I, I, think, <laughs> I ruled out Beeple and I'm not confident that generative artworks are out of copyright. So I instead decide to ask an artist friend of mine what he thinks about mimics and whether he would let me mimic one of his works. Hello. Hi, Anne. How are you going? I'm really well yourself. Pretty good. Just so you know, I am recording this conversation. <laughs> Jan van Schaik is an artist, an architect and an art collector. He made a sculpture series called Lost Tablets, which are made of used Lego blocks. I purchased one of these sculptures. Later, when Jan wanted to create an NFT series to go with them, I talked him through how he might go about that. 
He wasn't aware at the time that blockchain developers often refer to interoperable software components as blockchain Legos. And the fact that there would only ever be 100 lost tablets was a fortuitous coincidence that made the project easily adaptable for an NFT series. For Jan, NFTs are about proving ownership and provenance. I asked him to explain what he means by that. The other way that I often think about this is, uh, let's just go to the painting analogy again. If I purchase a painting, um, and, uh, which has very clear and well-documented providence, and this is not a, this is not a, a metaphor about um, copies and fakes. This is just a painting, and there's no question that, it's, um, that it is a, a, a painting that is by the artist that it purports to be. And let's just say that painting gets very badly damaged um, I have a, a fight with my partner and they throw it across the room and pour coffee on it and, and um, set part of it alight yep. uh, as a form of revenge for something terrible that one has done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that there. <laughs> we go on. No, but no, we're, not, we're not talking like that, are we? So then, um, then I would take that, that painting, I would then take that painting to, um, to be restored. Yeah. Um, and while the, while the, the, the material manifestation of the work that the artist did has been damaged that painting is still a painting it's still a painting by the artist that did it the provenance you can't damage the provenance of painting by burning it pouring coffee on it and slashing it with a razor blade yeah you can you can increase its value like if you tried to sell that painting at some point to a museum that wanted to collect an excellent example of that artist's work they might go well we can't have that one it's got water damage on it or something, but it, but it doesn't affect the provenance of the painting. You can't you can't destroy the provenance of the painting. You can only destroy its material manifestation of the work that the artist put into it. And, and I would argue that an NFT is the same thing. Um, you can't destroy the provenance of an NFT. You can you can make ten million proxies of it, or the cruder version of that. You could just screen grab it. And make a JPEG out of it, and have you know ten billion. You can make ten billion copies of that in about five minutes, probably. But you can't destroy the provenance of the NFT. So, back to your original question: How would I feel if someone is copying my work and then using it and sending it around? Given that I have the knowledge that the provenance of my work cannot be destroyed, and the original can be can be certified, well, basically they're promoting my work. They're they're giving it more presence in the world, and I think that's a good thing. So yeah. I feel good about it. Okay, great. So I'd be, I'd be you know, if, if I'd be flattered. Imitation <laughs> is the greatest form of flattery. If you, if someone, if someone, if someone's got a proxy out there and they choose my NFT, how many NFTs exist in the world? Do you think? Oh God, that's a good question. A lot. Billions. Let's say billions. If someone made a proxy and chose to point it at my NFT, I'll go. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ooh, me. <laughs> and this gets to the crux of NFTs. They are a way to link an artwork to an artist and their creation. They provide the artist with a way to make a digital artwork, something that can be exclusively attributed to them, and for buyers to purchase and own what Alana calls intangible property, without having to restrict who can enjoy and have access to it. When I asked Jan how he would feel about someone pointing their mimic at a lost tablet NFT, he told me this story. But there's an interesting thing that I've got on my wall um, behind me. Um, so a friend of mine was in a um, a friend of mine was making a tapestry in a in a workshop in um, in Poland, 
and um, the artist that had been uh, in that workshop before she was in there had left a sample on the ground of a test and it was just it was it's just a piece of fabric to be thrown away but it, like woven together it's, it's quite it's quite a beautiful little thing that's about uh, half the size of half of an a4 page and um she asked the people in the workshop if she could have it and i went yeah of course you can have it it's just a bit of fabric and then that person <clears throat> gave it to me as a present and so i've got this little bit of tapestry hanging on the wall the, the artist who'd been in the workshop before my friend was there it was Gerhard Richter so arguably I've got a Gerhard Richter on my wall which is whoa <laughs> it's a very nice thing to have but it has absolutely no provenance yeah because when you're buying an artwork right I think you once said to me that you're you're not buying the physical thing you're buying the artist's uh, expression of a creative idea or something along those lines how did you put it it's a concept or a or a feeling, or an experiment, um, or an observation made manifest, made made manifest by making a mark on a thing. Uh, it's the it's it's not the physical thing itself. It's what the artist thought to do and did that you're actually purchasing. If it, if it wasn't for that, it's really it's really not an artwork. It's just you know, some stuff. But I think that's why an NFT as an artwork is indistinguishable from an oil painting as an artwork. It's the, it's the provenance. In fact, Lost Tablets was intended to make people think about what they are actually buying when they buy an artwork. What's interesting about them is that they are made from a very un-unique material, um, which is that they are um, made from second-hand Lego. They have a very distinctive compositional quality, very distinctive form, a very distinctive um, way of standing up. There's nothing else that looks like them. They are very uniquely made by me, but you could pull them apart. They're not glued together. It's just a, it's just a series of leather books put together. So the physical material of the object is not what the artwork is. The artwork is the intuitive expression of mine, of a series of interests around the recognisability of architectural shapes in the world, which are then explored through the making of that object. And I think if you're listening to this, you probably think, who's talking about Lego? And which is often why with these particular artworks, it's not until you see them that you can possibly conceive of them as an artwork. There are so many millions of things that people make out of Lego. Obviously, there's all the things that Lego designs are to be made of, but the the culture of making, you know, giant pineapples or scenes from the Titanic or a, a pizza or um, I saw something on on YouTube the other day, which is someone who makes these little Lego animations and they make they made a whole meal and like chopping up carrots and pouring wine and it's all animated through Lego. Like there's nothing that that has not been made with Lego. Yet if you look at these objects that I've made, they are. They are, there's nothing else like them. And so they embody an idea that I had at a particular moment. Jan pointed out that when you copy, it's not necessarily done in a malicious way. It can be because you love a thing. It's interesting. Like, there are quite a few people that have seen the, these works that I made and have, have attempted to make their own. And how do you feel um, about that? And some of them are um, some of them are things that kids have done, and some of them are things that some people have seen these works and gone, oh, that's that's ridiculous. That's an artwork. I'm just going to go and make one. 
And I really enjoy those things. I collect them. I've got a series that people send me photographs and I've got a series of them. <laughs> and because uh, they, I, I feel really good about it. There's one nice story with uh, some friends of mine saw my work in a, in a Biennale and looked at it. And they're not people that um, would usually buy art. Um, and they got very excited. Oh, that's really good. They really liked it. And then they then they realised that to have it, they would have to purchase it at a price more than simply the cost of the Lego parts. And they balked at that and said, that's ridiculous. It's just Lego. And they said, we're going to go and make our own. So they went home, spoke to them a couple of weeks later, and they said, that was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and, then they, and then they bought one. Yeah, they found it too hard or they just through the process of making, loved it so much? No, no, they just, they realised that um, it's, that it's not something that they could do. But the, 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 the imitations that people make, which are not explicit copies, they're just people trying to do something similar, they, they are, they're all interesting in their own way, but they're not interesting in the same way that mine are interesting. And so I really like the, they become the sort of family, like they're these, um, and I, like I won't say mine are better, they're just different. Like the, so the project has, cousins and friends and poor imitations and very good imitations and you know maybe some of them are even better than mine but there's i have made today 89 of them and i've got 11 more to make um before i call that set of 100 done but it's the obsession with a process and following something through that makes them interesting just to make one is a, is a different exercise so everyone that others people make they're quite different well i'm going to make one by proxying it (laughs) (laughs) great i look forward to seeing it and so that's what i've done i've mimicked a lost tablet performed the right and now the owner of that lost tablet whoever they are will have this strange shield in their wallet what i like about it too about all those projects really it is that they're all of these projects are showing that NFTs are more than what we think of them, that they can kind of be anything, really, would you say? Yeah, I I do actually think this. I think that technologically they are underexplored. I think it's very ripe territory and because of a number of factors, like most, you know, there aren't a lot of Solidity devs out there who build stuff. Um, You know, the pool of people who build on Ethereum is pretty small within the developer world. And then even people with the technical skills to understand and write smart contracts don't necessarily have the time or, or you know, inspiration to do it, or, you know, for whatever. So essentially, like, the number of people who are building stuff that hasn't been done before um, is pretty small. And, you know, you factor in the fact that you can spend, you know, a month developing a new thing and maybe it will go well, or you can essentially deploy something that's technologically very similar but also but innovates because it's got a new artwork on it and it'd be way less work from a coding point of view but you're probably going to make more money so there's a lot of incentives not to innovate but i think it's just new as well like it's just a small pool that a lot of people don't know about so yeah i think i honestly think that there's a lot that we could be doing like there's a lot that as a space we could be doing and there's a lot of avenues that aren't explored which to the detriment of the whole the whole field I think if there was more innovation, there would be more, it would just be a better landscape. I do, I do think it, it's good to have a project which 
ask the questions that we need to be thinking about. You know, even these questions around like what is originality in the context of an NFT um, is a really important question to ask. So, you know, are NFTs really original? What does it mean to be original? You know, originality in the context of the law is very different from like an art historical perspective, but they're all questions that we need to be asking. And I think they're, they're the really interesting NFT projects when they can really force us to, you know, re- rethink why, why we think something has value. And the most interesting art does the same thing. Exactly. I am Ellie Rennie, the producer and writer of Mutable. James Milsom is the editor and script editor. This episode was created as part of an Australian Research Council-funded Future Fellowship, Cooperation Through Code. Thanks to the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub and the Digital Ethnography Research Centre where the research lives. If you want to read more about the legal aspects of NFTs, Alana Kushner and I, together with my colleague Indigo Holcomb-James, wrote a report for the Australia Council for the Arts that covers some of the themes discussed in this episode. Check out the show notes for links. Stay tuned for future episodes. And please subscribe to receive more episodes of Mutable in the future.